Hi, this is Khadija Abdurrahman from the We Be Imagining podcast. On March 22nd, I interviewed Mihir Parikh, an interventional pulmonologist and critical care physician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School, both of which are located in Boston, Massachusetts. At the time when we spoke, he, his wife, and their two young daughters were home quarantined in Massachusetts after a recent exposure to the novel coronavirus. Um, since then, uh, Dr. Parikh is now working in the ICU taking care of COVID-19 patients. Thank you. And I have me here, Parikh, an interventional pulmonologist and critical care physician at Beth Israel Medical Center and an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School, both in Boston. He and his wife and their two young daughters are at home quarantined in Massachusetts after a recent exposure to the novel coronavirus. Um, me here. Thank you so much for coming on. Sure. Happy to be here. Um, so I'm really interested to hear about your expertise, particularly as a pulmonologist, but I was hoping we could back up for a moment and you could just share personally, like, when did you become aware in your life of um, the gravity of the situation? Was it at the point at which um, your family needed to be quarantined or prior? You know, this has been building for a, a little while now, um, and it's it's sort of it seems like just a month ago feels like an eternity ago. Um, we had been hearing reports from Asia, you know, since the winter, and then Europe and especially Italy was. We were getting reports from colleagues out there about the tsunami of patients that were critically ill coming in, but it, it really started hitting home just about two weeks ago when the medical center that I work at really started making pretty dramatic changes in normal hospital just life that to me indicated that you know people higher up really were acknowledging the fact that we were going to have a similar wave of critically ill patients coming in. Um, we, I'm a pulmonologist that specializes in doing certain types of procedures in the airways and in the chest. And we got guidance about two weeks ago to pretty much kind of shut down our normal operations and triage patients so that we were only attending to the sickest of the sick, just realizing that we needed to make room in the hospital for the patients that were gonna be coming in with the novel coronavirus. Um, it, the, health, the, the healthcare system, a lot of it is, you know, dependent on a lot of these procedures that I do or mo many of us do to bring in cash flow for the hospital and for them to kind of acknowledge the fact that they were going to take a huge financial hit from canceling a lot of these elective procedures indicated to me that they really were expecting something dramatic to happen over the next month and two. And when you were, were initially hearing these reports in the winter from Asia and then Italy, did it did it not completely register or kind of how did you process that information at that point? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I think it, it, it just didn't register to me that it was going to come here, to be honest. You know, I, I knew that um, there was a potential for that, but I was just so busy with my normal day to day life, I think, and with having a young family that I just didn't think that far ahead that we were going to get to this point, at least so quickly. Mm hmm. And going through medical school, do they cover kind of disaster pandemic response? Is this something that in any way that your formal kind of pre-existing training had prepared you for? You know, I think it, we, we certainly don't have formal training in pandemics, but we certainly do have um, 
some idea of what our critical skills are that we need to employ in these situations. I think what I've been most struck by is the degree of professionalism and um, kind of all hands on deck mentality that my colleagues have taken as we enter into this sphere. And that's something that is drilled into us during our medical training that, you know, that for better or for worse, our responsibilities in the situations are to our patients and to the larger well-being of our community's health. And I think we've all sort of employed this philosophy as we go into the hospital every day. And I know that you've been on quarantine, but um, have you been having reports or getting reports from colleagues about what they're seeing? Are they are they having the flood of patients coming in yet or are they still in the anticipation moment? Yeah, you know, I've heard a couple of reports about patients coming in who are critically ill, but mostly it seems as if we're in this calm before the storm. Um, you know, I, we, we do get reports from colleagues down in New York City who are, I think, experiencing a much stronger wave of patients than we are yet. And our sense is up here in Massachusetts that we're about a week or two behind where New York is. And a lot of coverage has been on the shortage of um personal protective equipment, um, particularly a mask. And as a pulmonologist, and I know you mentioned some procedures, imagining bronchoscopies, um, do you do you know at your at your hospital, are there enough masks? Is there enough protective equipment for when you're going to be in the thick of it? It's a great question. I, I think we're not sure. Um, there are a lot of efforts to come up with protocols and procedures that are both going to keep our staff and our patients safe, but also be mindful of the fact that protective equipment for personnel is a limited resource and soon will probably be more limited than it is now. We're also trying to um, collect as much protective equipment as we can from non-hospital settings because I think supply lines are a little tenuous. So, you know, I've had my colleagues uh, reach out to dental practices, veterinary practices, construction staff to see Mm -hmm. if we can some protective equipment flooding into the hospital. And we're getting wonderful amounts of donations from what I've heard. There's also a pretty impressive do-it-yourself process going on as well. A couple of my colleagues who are um, or have some expertise in things like 3D printing, for example, um, they have been developing protocols and design templates to start printing these out. And, you know, here in Boston, we're, we're lucky to be in a pretty academically rich environment where, you know, between MIT and Harvard and the other institutions, a a library of 3D printers that are soon going to be deployed once we have what sounds like some pretty ingenious templates up. Yeah, I mean, the citizen response, including fashion designers who are now dedicating their factories to producing masks and other types of personal protective equipment, or even I saw people 3D printing uh, respirator valves is impressive. But I have to say, there's a part of me that also feels like this decentralized ad hoc response in the light of a pandemic is also a little, I don't know, disconcerting to think of physicians on the front line kind of hoping that things will weave themselves together. Um, how, do you, how are you feeling as you're kind of in this moment uh, before the storm has hit? It's a little frustrating, to be honest. You know, I, I think, you know, I, I, I myself was guilty of not realizing the, the, the gravity and the rapidity of the developing pandemic hitting the states. Um, but I would imagine that people who are higher up 
at the state and federal level whose job it is to be prepared for these situations should have, in my mind, been a little bit more proactive and potentially avoid some of the shortfalls that we may face as we enter into the more dramatic periods of this pandemic. I, I you know, I, I know, I know there'll probably be a lot of analysis. There already is, and hindsight will be twenty twenty. But I, 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 you know, I, I do feel a good amount of frustration about that. Um. Yeah. No, I can imagine. Um. Do you, do you have any like particular insights as somebody with a pulmonology background into the actual like disease process of of COVID? You know, it's really interesting to be kind of watching humanity describe a disease that's only existed for about three months. You know, if you, we talked a little bit before about like what life in medical school is, is like and what medical school trains us to do. And a lot of what we do in medical school is pattern recognition, right? That, that's a big component of what being a good physician is. It's a little harder to, to treat a disease for which the pattern hasn't been completely described yet. Um, and the pattern that's currently being described is from relatively small studies that are only a month or two old in institutions and communities uh, and populations that may not match the population in which we're going to be treating these patients. Um, and so it, it's really hard to know exactly what, um, what to prepare for or what to do for these patients as we move forward. That being said, you know, I think there has been a lot of great analysis being done and, and ingenuity being done in how we both try to characterize the patterns that are happening with novel coronavirus, as well as develop diagnostic and treatment algorithms in real time for disease that's inundating our medical system. Um, it's both really interesting to watch, but also terrifying. No, agreed. Um, <clears throat> do you what do you, what do you think is going to be the collateral impact of how you were saying you were given two weeks ago the guidance to cancel all elective uh, procedures? Um, and even if they're not emergent, I mean, I'm I'm assuming that they were referred because they were necessary. What is what do you see as the collateral impact of maybe having these on hold for the next six to nine months? Yeah, time will tell. You know, I think we have. Um, cancer patients or potential cancer patients that we have to decide how suspicious we are that they actually have cancer or that the cancer that they have is going to be untreatable or progress or metastasize in a period of three to six to nine months. And these are questions that are hard to answer. Um, you know, I, I think an interesting that may, thing that may come out of it, you know, trying to find a silver lining or something good is that, you know, a, a, a there, there may be many things that we're doing in medicine, or sorry, I should say had been doing in medicine up until a couple of weeks ago that perhaps weren't necessary. And maybe this will lead us to streamline some of our protocols and our treatment algorithms and our diagnostic mm -hmm. algorithms to be a little bit more thoughtful in terms of triaging, as opposed to, you know, what we sometimes do, which is just order everything. Um, mm -hmm. The reality point. of the situation is we can't. And, and that might be a good thing to come of it um, <laughs> as we struggle to find some silver linings in this situation. At the same time, though, how, how equipped do you think, you know, not just Mass General, but hospitals are in general to protect um, the immunocompromised people have to continue to get like uh, outpatient, you know, chemotherapy infusions um, and hospitals that are converting to uh, treating primarily COVID-19 patients? 
Yeah, there's a lot of hard decisions being made. Um, it, it's it's a tough call. I had a conversation with a patient of mine just a, a couple of days ago when we were just trying to make that, you know, work through that decision tree of, you know, the risks of coming into the hospital now or undergoing a diagnostic procedure now versus the risk of delaying some of these treatments. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of it have, is an individual decision based on the patient's preferences and the physician's concerns for risk. But it, it's hard to you know, identify a, a, a clear answer for every patient, for sure. Um, and do you have any commentary on the respirators? I mean, I know that there's a shortage. They're trying to have more delivered, particularly to like urban areas that are anticipating um, a higher rate of community transmission than some of the like more rural or suburbanized areas. Um, but do we have enough people to, to man these respirators? Do we have the intellectual capital? Is there anything that you anticipate in the middle of this response? Yeah, it's 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 almost as if we in the healthcare system are taking on like a more of a military approach to this. There have been a couple of analogies being done that were sort of in the midst of a war, and I think in some ways the redeployment of our healthcare staff and systems have been along the lines of all hands on deck, and then you know we're moving ego aside, and we're going to be stepping into positions that previously we hadn't been. And so, for example, I'm a pulmonary critical care physicians. And so my expertise is in dealing with things like respirators and ventilators and, and ICU um, uh, level of care. But my colleagues in sort of non-critical care based disciplines, other subspecialties of internal medicine or even outside of internal medicine are being asked to cover areas that they wouldn't be. And so we create these hierarchical structures where as I, as the intensivist, for example, lead a team of providers who were previously gastroenterologists, rheumatologists, oncologists, to come in and do some of the ground level work under my supervision, which is sort of, you know, completely different than the structure we previously had, but these are completely different situations in which we're in. And how is that playing out? How ready are people to transition? I mean, I, you know, pragmatically, they have no choice, but like, how ready are people to play that position? You know, I think that the spirit is certainly willing in terms of people want to be helpful as much as they can be. Um, but uh, whether or not, you know, people feel capable to do that or not, I think people have expressed concerns that they don't remember some of the things that they that that are required in the ICU, for example, that these are things that they haven't interacted with or thought about since their residency days. But, um, you know, I, I think there is many models in which we can sort of think about this team-based approach where a lot of the more critical decisions are made by people with more specialized expertise like myself, whereas a lot of the more mundane things that need to happen in the ICU can be handled very easily by these providers. Um, I mean, that, that is a silver lining. And I hear, I hear what you're saying that we wish that on a federal national level for people who were aware of what was coming, that there was more preparation put into place. But now that we're in the middle of it, are there things that you would like to see that are not yet happening? Yeah, you know, I, I, it's, it's a good question. I, I, I think we are making headway with testing was a big issue when we were at this point, maybe about two weeks ago. I think we've corrected that. I think the correct concern now is that, you know, what are the next months going to look like? Are we going to remain in this core, like sort of social distancing phase, 
people on lockdown, curfews, small businesses being shut for months? Or can we find a way to be a bit more tactical about how we approach which patients are most vulnerable, which communities are most vulnerable, and allow a more targeted approach to protecting those populations and kind of letting the larger society and community kind of re-enter into a normal phase of life. I don't know what the right answer is here, but I, I wish people were a bit more thoughtful about projecting what the next couple of months are going to look like, at least to give us all a sense of what the future is going to be. And, you know, on your end, is all the reporting back from either globally, like places in, you know, like Wuhan or Italy, um, or even nationally now, as certain places like New York are getting hit harder um, than maybe where you're located? Are all the conversations that you're hearing informal? Or are there some kind of formalized platforms for physicians to share um, information as they're receiving it and kind of synthesize what's working, what's not working? Yeah, there, there are sort of like formal slash informal venues for sure. There is certainly, there's, there's no centralized repository of data. There's no centralized um, process by which information is being disseminated to the medical community. There are some guidelines that we are following based on CDC recommendations for things like healthcare exposures, um, some initial considerations for diagnostic and treatment algorithms, but pretty much everything else is being done in at an institutional level or a regional level, uh, both formally and informally. Um, our, you know, our professional societies are actively convening and, and trying to develop algorithms and protocols that they would describe. But to be honest, I think a lot of it is just happening informally through social media platforms where we have created groups of physicians um, that have some expertise as well as some interest to you know, disseminate and collect information between all of us, uh, between a regional level here in Massachusetts, here in Boston, between the major academic medical centers. We have a lot of uh, communication happening between the institutions about protocols that we're developing and new data that we're trying to develop and disseminate. It's been, um, it, it, it's sort of been a flood of information on some levels, but it, it, it's been, it's been very helpful. And within those communities, um, I guess the, the golden question for everybody is there, is there a projected range of time that all of this will last? You know, is this going to be seasonal like the flu and then maybe in the summertime we'll have uh, some reprieve or do people still not know yet? I don't think people know yet, to be honest. I think a lot of it has to do with sort of how good we're doing at social distancing in terms of, you know, what, what when and where and how we're going to see the peak of patients coming in. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I honestly don't know that we have any great data to project where we're going to be three months from now. But that just might be me. Uh, well, everything is, I think it's also the accelerated pace at which people are receiving information um, from day to day. Everything seems to change. And on that note, I wanted to, I don't know if you have any insights into this, but I feel like when I first started hearing about COVID-19, it was primarily that they were these high-risk categories of people who are severely immunocompromised or 70 plus. And now it seems to be the case. I know at least in New York, they're saying 50% of COVID-19 patients were between the ages of 20 and 50. Um, so from whatever you're reading and from your expertise, 
you know, how concerned should we be about, you know, non-geriatric populations and people who don't have um, pre-existing conditions? Yeah, this is kind of what I was talking about, where we're sort of describing a disease process in real time and with sort of limited data with a population that we might, we don't really fully understand, you know, who we're studying. Because, um, you know, interestingly, we're seeing that those same numbers here in Boston as well, too, where it seems to be at least the initial patient populations seem to be younger than what we expected based on data that was coming out of Asia and Italy. Um, mm -hmm. the, the question is, is you know, there, there are multiple possibilities for what could explain that. Is it that the disease is different in this population? Is the virus different now? Um, or is it, you know, what I think the most likely explanation is that we've done a really good job of informing our elderly to stay home. And because there was so much concern amongst the older populations about the numbers that were coming out in terms of their risk profile, that they've just really locked themselves in. And those communities and populations and who haven't, perhaps the younger patient populations that didn't really follow the social distancing guidelines as well as we would have liked, maybe they're the ones that are seeing the infection earlier on. And those are the patients we're seeing earlier on. Whereas in just maybe it's just a matter of time before the infection and the virus starts transmitting to those older populations and we actually start seeing them coming in in earnest. It's hard to know. And I think it's also hard for, I mean, I think from my perspective and I think for a lot of people when, you know, what's, what's the information that you can trust when there's so much misinformation and disinformation and then even from, you know, the president of the United States himself. Um, are there any resources that you would suggest that people go to to verify and kind of fact check the information that they're hearing? That's a great question. I, I don't actually know. You know, I think the CDC is probably a good place to start. Um, and they have a, a lot of good information on their websites. Um, I think your local providers are probably going to be able to respond to kind of more real-time information, at least in your local communities. But I imagine they're all pretty inundated now and they're trying to cycle through the same flood of information as everybody else. Um, I, 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 I agree with you. I, I, I wish there was a stronger message coming from up top about, you know, where we are and, and where we're going and what we're doing about it. But I, I just don't think that that voice has been there. Do you have a take on the continued use of testing? I mean, have we missed have we missed the bandwagon, or is it still worthwhile to pursue um, what kind of on mass testing? I think it's still worthwhile to to to, to do the on mass testing. I, I think it'll help us understand really exactly what the gravity of the situation is, and it, it may also help assuage some of the anxiety out there. I, I think you know there are recent reports coming out from places like Singapore and South Korea where where they did do much more large-scale testing than we've done here, and that the actual percentage of patients who have mild or even asymptomatic infections from the virus are higher than we anticipated. And mm -hmm. that may make us all feel a little bit less anxious about what the next few months are going to be, you know, and as well as, you know, with the possibility of contracting the infection. Um. All right. Well, thank you so much. I guess my last question is, do you want to share a little bit about what your experience as a family has been of being under quarantine? And, uh, you know, do you get delivery all the time? Like, what do you do? Yeah. You know, it's really been interesting. I, I think the most um, interesting thing, I don't know about the most interesting, but one of the most interesting things I've experienced recently is that, you know, in some level, we feel super isolated, right? It's just the four of us in the house. Um at the same time, it does feel like there's a huge community around us. We've gotten um, care packages from friends and neighbors uh, multiple times a day, just, you know, kind of 
kind of ringing the doorbell or knocking the door and just leaving something on the front step. At the same time, you know, family is at home. All of our families and friends are at home and our social calendar has in some ways been busier than it normally is with, you know, family Zoom meetings and <laughs> times and, and it's, you know, every night we're just, you know, going through FaceTime to Zoom meeting to FaceTime to Zoom meeting. I didn't think my four-year-old would know what Zoom is so quickly, but she's pretty into it. Um, and it, it's been, you know, it, it's also been interesting because we, we got quarantined pretty early into this. And a lot of my coworkers are still in the hospital. And, and there is some level of guilt that comes from that and that my being quarantined at home and my inability to be in the hospital thereby forces somebody else who wasn't supposed to be on call or wasn't supposed to be in the hospital to then have to go in and risk being exposed themselves. Um, but in all of my interactions with my coworkers, there's never been that sense. It's always been a team approach, a family approach. I think we all acknowledge that this is going to be a long haul and that we will all have times where we will need to be at home and times where we'll need to be in the hospital. Um, and it, it's really been heartening in that sense. And when you and your wife return to work, uh, what is your child? Do you have, have you decided child care? Schools, schools are closed where you are. Yeah. So have you decided child care? Yeah, we're lucky enough to have a nanny um, who's also stepped up to help us out. She she is, um, you know, she sees this as her way of contributing to the, you know, the the larger fight against the pandemic. And so she's she's ready and willing to come back and help us with childcare once we have to go back to work. You know, because okay. you know the other thing is that you know we have we have parents too, but this is a time in which parents are best not being around us for sure. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add? No, I think this has been great. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and logging on to Skype. Sure. Anytime. Oh, one last question that I asked everybody. Is there anything that you're reading, watching, listening to right now that you'd like to recommend? Uh, you know, caring for a four and a five-year-old, we're doing a lot of PBS Kids and, uh, <laughs> and videos <laughs> of um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I've been watching a little bit of Netflix myself. Uh, a Schitt's Creek is a pretty good show. Someone told me about that. It's pretty funny. So you're not watching Contagion? No, I've tried to stay away <laughs> from Contagion as much as possible. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you, Mihir. I really appreciate it. Sure. Have a good day. You too.